1 Peter 3. We are finishing 1 Peter 3, verses 18 through 22. This is our third week um, walking through this. First week, we dealt with verse 18. Uh, Second week, we dealt with 19 and 21. And and today, we're going to deal mainly with uh, 21 and 22. We're dealt with 19 and 20, uh, 21 and 22. There is such depth in these five verses as chapter 3 ends today. All of this has been about Peter's declaration that no one has suffered like Jesus has suffered. And because of who he is, his suffering brought the greatest victory. And Peter is writing to a group of people, as we've been walking through this, who have been dealing with persecution. It is a consistent theme through this letter that Peter writes to these believers that suffering is a reality. They are dealing with it. And he's been reminding them all through the letter and really through this section of chapter 3, telling them this, listen, suffering is a reality, but great glory comes from suffering as we maintain our faith and walk with God because Jesus becomes the highest model of what that looks like. His suffering for you and I is incredibly important. If you're a guest with us this morning, the cross is a big deal to us at this church. We are a cross-centered people. Because in the cross, we are reminded that God is holy, that we are not, and that something really significant needed to happen to bridge that gap of God's holiness and our sinfulness. And what bridged that gap to bring us into a relationship with God is what Christ did for us on the cross. And so the act of what He did, His life, His willingness to lay His life down, becomes the very center of our lives that we do not allow his suffering that brought great glory to leave our lives. Before we look at 1 Peter 3, I want to ask you to turn to the Old Testament book just for a moment to the book of Isaiah. And I want you to go to chapter 53. And I'm going to read um, a lot of this because as we finish chapter 3 today, um, he is concluding the glory that has come because of Christ's suffering. And there is no Old Testament scripture passage that affirms this reality of what has been done for us, like Isaiah chapter 53. Let's start in verse 1. Prophetic word about the coming Messiah, about Jesus, and this is what Isaiah wrote about Jesus. Who has believed what he has heard from us, And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. But this was the reality of his life. Verse 3, Jesus was despised and was rejected by men. He was a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. He should have been the one in Isaiah 6 where Isaiah sees the glory of the Lord and the angels are calling out to one another his holiness. He came here and men turned their, instead of turning their faces to him and bowing and worshiping him, men turned their faces from him and did not esteem him and honor him. His suffering goes on. Look at verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and he carried our sorrows. And yet we did this. We esteemed him stricken, 
smitten by God and afflicted. But you see, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. And all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. And yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that is before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. And although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him, to put him to grief. And when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring and he shall prolong his days. And the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many, praise God for this, make many to be accounted righteous for this reason, for he shall bear their iniquities. Are you still amazed by that today? We were full of sin, full of iniquity. He stepped into our place. He bore it. Many accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Look at 12. Therefore, I will divide a portion with the many for him, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. And yet he bore the sin of many, and he makes intercession for the transgressors. All right, go back to 1 Peter 3. We're going to hear the echo of much of that in the text today. As we finish 1 Peter 3. So I want to review. If you'll look up at the screen. We've had 16 points. Beginning of verse 18. And we'll finish with verse 22 today. I think we've done about 11 of them. We're going to zoom through them real fast. And I want to remind us of where we have been. So 1 Peter 3. Let's put it all together. Beginning at verse 18. And then we'll just be reminded of what we've seen before. And we'll finish things up today. Verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. So this theme that Peter's been walking us through is the great suffering of Jesus brought the ultimate victory for us in our lives and because of who he is and what he has done for us 
there are some things we needed to be reminded of. And Peter wanted them to know this, to get this and to grab it. And this is what he said first of all in verse 18. Jesus died once for all. His suffering was a once and for all event. We are not, as we've talked in these weeks, in the Catholic Mass every week. This is what the Catholic Mass is doing. They are thinking in their mind, we are crucifying Jesus over again for the sins that have happened. This is not a biblical idea. Jesus died once for all. This is not something we want redone. It's something that we retell over and over again as we are doing this morning. So he was the only sacrifice that could satisfy, and it was a a death once and for all. And when he died, he became the sin bearer. The righteous for the unrighteous. It says this, For Christ also suffered or died for our sins. He died for sins. He didn't die to make our financial situation better. He didn't die to make us prettier. He didn't die to improve our personality. He didn't die for this, that, or the other. He died for our sins. That was the greatest thing that he could do was to die for our sins. So he died once and for all. The only sacrifice that was satisfactory, he became the sin bearer. And then here's what he did. He became the substitutionary death. We deserved, we were supposed to hang here. We deserve to hang here. But Jesus willingly said this, no, I will take their place. I will be the one who will bear the sin. I will be the sacrifice. I will bear that and I will bear it in my body. And I will vicariously step into their place and I will as a substitution, take their place, and I will bear the sins of many. So he's the sole sacrifice that pleases the Father. He is the one who is the sin bearer. He died for our sins, and he is the one who took our place. He is the substitute, the righteous for the unrighteous. And then he says this. This is the aim of it. We saw it in the video a while ago. And... Are you going to get excited today, Ryan? I just don't know. I'm, I'm waiting, okay, for Ryan to get excited. He keeps saying he's going to get excited. Listen to me. Okay, good. He did all this so that we could be brought to God. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. We could not get to God On our own, we couldn't stack up enough works. We couldn't come to church enough. We couldn't be baptized enough. We couldn't do anything to get us to God. So Jesus died in our place, and he's the one who brings us to the Father. He becomes, the Scripture says, the introducer to us. In the ancient days, this word that, that Peter says, that he might bring us to God, this word in the Greek, bring us, is a picture of 2,000 years ago, or a thousand years ago, there was somebody who worked in the king's court, and their authority was this, they could allow access into the king's throne room so that you could talk to the king, ask the king a question, or seek mercy from the king, whatever the case is. That person was called the introducer. Jesus becomes that. He's the one who brings us. He's the one who gives access so that we can come to the Father. And then he says this, that he was put to death in the flesh, but he was made alive in the spirit. Jesus never spiritually died. For if he had died spiritually, then there is no sacrifice for our sins. 
He never died spiritually, but he did die physically. Put into the tomb, he was dead, but his spirit was alive. And when he died on the cross and he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, the Bible tells us that he went somewhere, Peter says. And here's what he did, that the spirit of Jesus, that was eternally alive, Peter says this, Put to death in the flesh, made alive in the spirit, in the spirit, in which, referring to in the spirit, in his spirit, he went and preached to the spirits who were in prison. We talked about this last week, that there was in the book of Genesis a group of angels who left their proper place and somehow they took on flesh, they had sex with women, children were born, created this race of people, um, these giants called the Nephilim in Genesis chapter 6. The angels, what they did was so bad that they were put in chains, put in prison until the final judgment. And they are there now. Jude calls it gloomy darkness, put in chains in gloomy darkness. Jesus went there during the weekend that he was put, his body was put into the grave. He went to this prison and he proclaimed his victory to these spirits and said, I have won the victory. We talked about it last week. Can you imagine the celebration that was taking place and the thinking of these demons who have been kept in prison in chains in gloomy darkness since Genesis, the time of Genesis, thinking we're going to be free now, and Jesus shows up and says, here I am, and I'm proclaiming that I am the victorious one. So he went to the spirits in prison, and he had a sermon to proclaim. The Greek word here is proclamation of victory. It's not the word for evangelism. He didn't go to a place to evangelize people who had already died so that they could have a second chance. You have to decide on this side of death what you're going to do with Jesus. He also didn't go and preach to them and proclaim to them so that the demons could have another chance. He went and proclaimed a victory. This was not evangelism that he did but a proclamation. And then we talked last week about the saints and the sacredness of our faith. And now we're going to get to point 11. Isn't it good that we're not starting with point one today? We'd be here forever. So let's look at this next part. And this is going to remind us of some pretty amazing things today. If you know Christ as your Savior today and you've known Him for a while Um, you will affirm some of the the things that we're going to look at today, and they will really resonate with your heart. So here's what he says in the next part of verse 20. Well, I guess we can put all the 20 together. Because they, going back to the spirits in prison, they formerly did not obey. And so Peter's going to put the time frame about the spirits in prison, and he's going to put it in the days of Noah, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. So here's what I want to talk about now just for a moment. And I want to talk in the second part of verse 20 when it talks about when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. And I want to talk about the steadfast patience of God. And it is an incredible reality for us. Peter wants us to know this. That one of the amazing things about God is this, is God has this steadfast, unmovable patience. And so Peter's Peter's writing to a group of people who are under great persecution. And he's trying to encourage them, and he's going to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 6, and he's going to use an illustration to them 
from the life of Noah and what Noah was experiencing, that it was similar to what these recipients of Peter's letter were going through. That there were similarities between Noah and them, Noah's generation, and the generation under the leadership of Nero that was persecuting Christians in AD 60, somewhere around in there when this letter was written and what was taking place and happening um, throughout the Roman Empire. And so he's wanting them to see this, that God then and now was operating in this unbelievable patience with the world. And so Peter is saying, here's the first thing I want you to see about this incredible love that God has, this incredible offer of salvation that God has. It is connected to how patient God is. Now, I did lots of reading this week in my you know, some, I don't know if you do this, trying to answer some of the difficult questions come up and your brains just start swimming. And so I did tons of looking this week of how long did it take for Noah to build the ark? And, and you can look at, I mean, just really, really godly uh, people and great pastors, great people who understand Hebrew and the scripture and all of that kind of stuff. And you see anywhere from about 40 years to about 120 years. And so um, I'm going to share with you what I, the kind of time frame that I think it was, just based on what I, I, I looked at here. Genesis chapter 5 tells us at the end of it, last verse, that Noah was 500 years old when he became the father of his three sons. Now just think about that for a moment. You know, after the flood, God had limited the lifespan of people to 120 years. But can you imagine being 500 and you hadn't even had kids yet? And you have a Noah ends up living 950 years. So he's 500, he doesn't have any kids. And we don't know if his sons were all triplets. It just says this, that he was 500 when the three sons were born. So um, there's a little bit of, okay, what does that mean? Does that mean they were all born at the same time? Or they were born in that neighborhood of that time of when he was 500 years old? You look in Genesis chapter 6. God looks at the world and he's done with the world and he's going to limit man's lifespan to 120 years. It's not going to be over 120 years. Noah is going to be the last one who lives a long time. He ends up living after the flood um, another 450 years or 449 years where he ends up being 950 years old. You look at Genesis chapter 6 and 9, and it says this, And these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man. He was blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. 6.11 says, The earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And so God spoke to Noah in Genesis 6.13 and said, I have determined to make an end to all flesh, for the earth was filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. And so he tells Noah, make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and, with the, and out with pitch. Genesis 7, 6 tells us that Noah was 600 years old when the flood waters came upon the earth. And it says in seven eleven, in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, the fountains of the great deep underneath the earth brought up water. And then it says this, and then the windows of the heaven, this canopy of water that was above it that's described in Genesis chapter 1, the heavens were open and rain began to pour down on the earth. So I looked at all that trying to figure out how long, how long did it take for Noah to do this. Somewhere, I think, around the neighborhood of 
probably not 120 years, but probably somewhere in the neighborhood of about 100 years, it took him to build the ark. Now, God was done with his generation. He literally says in Genesis 6, there wasn't a person on the earth outside of Noah and his family whose mind and whose heart didn't love violence or doing violence. We think we live in a violent culture. It is nothing like Genesis chapter 6. Everybody was out for themselves. Everybody was doing violence to other people. God was done with it. He was going to limit man not to live hundreds of years because this is what they were doing. Can you imagine people living 700, 800 years and all they did was sin and violence and evil? And God was done with it. And so for about, when he speaks to, to Noah, for about a hundred more years, God had been done with the generation. He allowed Noah's generation to continue to live while Noah built the ark. And so Peter is communicating to these readers, calling us back to say this, let me give you an idea of the patience of God. You are receiving persecution, but let me remind you of Noah. Noah likely lived in the most evil time in the history of the world, and even with the depravity of Noah's generation, God was steadfastly patient, allowing that generation an opportunity to repent of their sin and to join Noah in the ark for salvation. And if you and I are here today in this room and you know Jesus, God has been unbelievably patient with us. We live in a time that Jesus has not returned. There is still opportunity today for people to trust Christ and to come into a relationship with Him. God, since the cross, has been incredibly steadfastly patient with our generation, allowing people to come into faith with him. Now I want you to turn to the next next book, Second Peter, just for a moment. I want to show you something in Second Peter chapter three about the great patience of God. Second Peter chapter three, verse eight. Peter's going to affirm in the second letter about the incredible patience of God and why God is patient. 2 Peter 3.8, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but He is patient, watch this, toward you. He is patient toward you, not wishing that anyone should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Look at 9 again. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but He is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Verse 10. But there's going to come a day, Peter says, that the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Peter's writing in the second letter, and people are mocking Christians saying, y'all keep saying Jesus is going to come back. Where is he? Where is he? He's not come back, but y'all keep 
talking about his coming and he hasn't come back and they're mocking the second coming and Peter is addressing these believers to have this understanding. Here's why you don't need to worry about their mocking. You need to be reminded of this as God is giving the mockers still time to repent and turn to him. Is he not amazing? Is he not amazing that he's still giving those who trample the blood of Christ and trample his name he is so patient, he is still giving them an opportunity to repent and turn and come to a relationship with him. And so Peter is reminding them, listen, God's patience in Noah's day, God's patience in our day is unbelievable. He is still allowing people to come into a relationship with him. Let me just read this real quick, Romans 2. For, or do you presume on the richness of God's kindness and forbearance or, and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? I came to Christ at 17, and one of the realities that Sunday night when I came to faith in Jesus was this, is that I recognized that I was sinful. There were things that were not right in my life. My relationship with my parents was really off kilter. It was not in a good place. And it kind of had driven me, along with some other things, to take a look at my life. And on a Sunday night, I realized that God was kind to Doak through his son, Jesus. And I came to faith that night, recognizing that God really wasn't a God of wrath, even though he has wrath, but he was a God who loved and was allowing me an opportunity to come into a relationship with him. And recognizing his kindness led me to a place of repentance. And we should never forget that. His patience should also be seen as this unbelievable kindness toward us that he's not, not just not allowed us to have an opportunity, but he has given us an opportunity to be in relationship with him. So let me go to the second thing this morning. So one, Peter's reminding them, God's got this unbelievable steadfast patience. But I think we can't, we can't move away from this without recognizing the steadfast faith of Noah. Now just think of this for a moment. We live in a day, we live in a time when the reality of our lives is this is that there just seems to be a crumbling of the foundations of faith, a crumbling of the reality of not many people walking the narrow way and just, at least for us in the West, seeing the reality of this. And I want you to think about Noah for a moment. Can you imagine, the, Peter also writes this about Noah. This is uh, in Second Peter, he writes this. He says that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. He was a preacher. Can you imagine building an ark for 100 years and preaching at the same time, and nobody believes your message. Nobody believes your message. But your three sons and your wife and your three sons' wives. Eight people believe the message, everybody in Noah's family. 100 years building, preaching. Hey, hey, I'm building this because God is going to judge the earth. He's tired of the violence whatever, somebody new may have come to that area where Noah's building this and Noah's preaching one day in the city and people are going, who is that new guy's like, who is that? Oh, don't listen to him. He's been saying that for 87 years now. 
He just says the same thing over and over and over and over again. Don't listen to him just over and over and over. He preached it, he preached it, he preached it, he preached it. Nobody believed it. I'm telling you, faith, that's faith. No converts. So was Noah a failure? Was Jesus a failure? You know what happened on the night he was arrested? What did the disciples do? They left. They all fled. So was Jesus a failure at developing men? No. It means that sometimes the heart of men is really wicked. And the heart of man who even loved Jesus sometimes want to self-preserve. And they will deny and they will run in the weakest moment. And that's what the 12 did or 11 did. And that is also what was taking place in Noah's day. We live in a time where the steadfast faith is really critical. I want, to look, I want you to look at one more thing just for a moment. Go to the right, or excuse me, go to the left, to the book of Hebrews, just to the left of 1 Peter. And I want you to look at chapter 11 just for a moment, because the writer there writes some pretty cool stuff or <clears throat> in one verse about Noah. Hebrews 11, verse 7. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. And by this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. So here's Noah building the ark. He's communicating to his generation that this judgment that is coming, God comes, he reveals himself to Noah in words. Noah exercises faith in God. I mean, this would have been strange. Okay, listen, out here in the middle of nowhere, I know there's no lakes, there's no oceans. It's a long way from stuff. I want you to build this really big structure. And I want you to trust me that I'm going to bring a flood and this this. This is going to rescue you and your family. So he exercises faith in God. And then it says, in reverent fear, he understood this, that true worship has manifested itself always in obedience. It's not here on, on today where we sing and we might lift our hands and we can play a part, not that that's not authentic. But true worship happens on Tuesday when there's no money in the bank account and we have to decide, okay, am I going to trust God about this? Or this other thing happens and we have, to, we have to exercise faith and belief in God. And then it says this, he constructed an ark for the saving of his household. Noah joined in the purposes of God in his generation. And that call comes to us as well to join God in that. And then Noah chose to live in righteousness and not under condemnation. For it says, by this building of the ark, by this faith in what God said to him, he condemned the world by living contrary to it and became an heir of righteousness that comes by faith. So Noah had this unbelievable, steadfast faith. Second Peter 2, 5 says, If you did not spare the ancient world, but he preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Noah was a preacher. That's the third point this morning. There were sermons of Noah where he spoke and he spoke and he spoke and he spoke in spite of no converts. It's always been a remnant that God has had of people who trust him and follow him. Next thing I want to see this morning, point 14, is this. 
there is a safety that faith affords and brings to us. And here's what the scripture says. In which a few, that is, eight persons were brought safely through water. So Peter is wanting to show these believers that because Noah was saved while living in the most evil time ever, they can find encouragement as they live under the persecution of Nero that if they will maintain their faith, God will bring them through this and God will bring them to himself. The world can rage, the world can reject, but those who know Jesus, they will be brought safely because of faith in Jesus Brought safely through the flood. Remember what we looked at a few weeks ago. Peter said this in verse 13 of chapter 3. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, he says this, have no fear of them and don't let your heart be troubled. Don't be troubled about that. Nobody ultimately can do anything to you if you are in Christ because there is a safety that comes when we trust in Him. By being, having faith in Jesus, we are placed in Jesus and our position is connected with Him and the honor is connected to those who know Jesus. Peter said it like this in chapter 2. He said, Behold, I'm quoting the scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen, precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. A stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, and they stumble because they disobey the word. So the honor comes to us. There's a safety that comes to us because our faith rests in what Jesus did. So I would say to you and I today, have faith in Jesus. Bank on Jesus. Don't bank on anything else. Not job security, not money, not some kind of status. Stand in Jesus' trust. Don't worry about anything but Jesus. Because we are in, he's the ark, he's that symbol, and we are in him, and there is security. And when you and I know the truth, we can stand in it, and we are protected by it. Point 15, there is a soul grounds of salvation. Now there are, anybody, i just ask a response question. Anybody grow up in a denomination that believed um, baptism brought salvation? Anybody grow up in a denomination like that? If you were baptized by water, um, <clears throat> that water baptism was actually the means of salvation. Most every evangelical, f- things that fall under evangelical, like the Church of Christ, this is what they believe. Um, though Mormons are not Christian, that is a cult. The Mormons' baptism is a really big deal to them. And the verse that's pointed to is Peter's words here um, in verse 21. And it's really important, I want to deal with this just for a moment so that we can understand it, because you can kind of see, if you don't delve into it and really look at this, how some people have been misguided and believe some things that the Scripture doesn't teach. Now, before we read verse 21, look up here just for a moment. All through this, here's what Peter's been saying. Jesus' suffering, his death, his death and his resurrection, that's what saves you. Faith in what, who he is and what he has done, that's what saves you. So why in the world would Peter all of a sudden say, okay, I'm going to negate everything I've been writing about, everything I've been affirming. And actually the reality is, as long as you're water baptized, you'll get to go to heaven. 
it's, it's, it doesn't make any kind of sense. From chapter 1, 3, all he's been doing, verse 3, all he's been doing is saying, Jesus, death, his suffering brought the greatest victory. Have faith in him. Place your life in him. It's like the ark. It's going to allow you to pass through the waters. It's going to allow you to pass through judgment. Well, uh, I kind of didn't really mean all that. Just get put under the water. So what does Peter mean here? I believe that he's talking about immersion. That's what the word baptism here means. It means to be immersed. But it's not water baptism that he's fully talking about, though he is speaking in regard to that, the symbol with it. Now look what it says there, 21. Baptism, which corresponds to this. What does correspond mean? It's in the likeness of It's similar to this. So when we're baptized... We are, it corresponds to what has happened. So here we are, we're standing up out of the water. It's our old life. We're put under the water, representing the death of Jesus. Buried with him, he was put into the grave, and then we're raised up to new life. That's the picture of baptism. And so he's saying here, connecting to the floodwaters of Noah, this is a symbol of, of what's taken place, it corresponds to it. It's a likeness of, but he doesn't say it is actually it because what actually saved Noah and his family? Was it the floodwaters or was it the ark? Hello? <laughs> it was the ark. So he's giving a picture, utilizing both water and talking about it because he just talked about the building of the ark, which saved the family, that they were the, wa- the waters that came. The waters that came carried the ark to Ararat to where they, when the doors were opened up, they walked out into a new world after the judgment of God. So I just, I want to remind us here just to be really careful. Peter hasn't been saying all along, okay, it's the suffering of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. That's how you come to know him. But I kind of didn't really mean that. I just think that you need to be water baptized. Now, if Peter meant that, he would kind of negate this idea of once and for all the death of Jesus. That actually it's water baptism, it's, it's, it's this act that happens. And the second thing was this, is if that's what Peter means, he is totally contradicting many, many other scriptures. If you read the book of Acts, which we are doing this year in the W4, confirmation that salvation had come was always evidence when the Holy Spirit came upon people. That's when you knew that salvation had truly come. In Acts chapter 10, Peter's with Cornelius. And Cornelius and that group, they come to faith in Jesus and the Holy Spirit falls on these Gentiles. And the Jews were like, whoa, the Spirit's fallen on Gentiles just like the Spirit has fallen on, on Jews. So this is confirmation that salvation has come here. And because Peter sees this, Peter says, what should prevent these people from being water baptized? Watch this. Faith came, spirit came before water baptism in Acts chapter 10. But because they saw, Peter saw the same evidence that salvation had come upon these Gentile believers, the spirit had fallen on them, then they could be water baptized. Peter, excuse me, Paul, Acts chapter 2. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves, but it's, it's the work of God he speaks. 
Because here's what happens. If it's of us, here's what we do. We would boast about it. It is by grace you have been saved. It is by the work of God, not by the work of man. Some of you dads have baptized your kids here. I've baptized maybe some of you here. It's something that I do. There is no work of man that saves us. So Peter here is not contradicting Scripture, but he's giving a visual picture that, that in Christ we are placed into the ark, we are placed in him, and when God brought the judgment in Noah's generation of water upon the earth, Because Noah and his family were in the ark, they were brought safely through it with the water. Now, let me just point this out as well. If water baptism saved you, then why did not God tell Noah's family, get wet? Why did he tell them to go under the ark and stay dry? Who got wet in Noah's generation? The believers or the unbelievers? The unbelievers did. So Peter is not. He's just saying... Let me give you an illustration. Let me kind of give you a picture that baptism pictures what has taken place in our faith. When we are wet, and and by the way, this next phrase that he uses here is confirmation of the reality that he's not talking about salvation. He says, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you as a picture corresponding to that. Not as, here's what baptism does. You get put in our horse trough that we've got back there. You get put under that, it's just going to remove dirt from your body. So he says, baptism, this is all that water baptism can do, as important as of a a picture of this is, it just is going to remove water from your body. So he says that there. He says, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but here's, he's talking about salvation. Here's what happens in salvation. We make an appeal to God to say, God, I'm a sinner. There's something wrong with my conscience. I'm convicted. And so, God, I'm appealing to you. I'm repenting to you. I'm coming to you, and I'm asking you to rescue me Look what he says. Look at, look at 21. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. A bad conscience, recognizing I've sinned against God. God, I need to come to you. And look what he says. This appeal to God for a good conscience, it happens through what? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's through the resurrection. So Peter here is not saying baptism saves us water baptism that's not what he's saying he is saying that is a picture a shadow of the future substance which is faith in jesus all right let's finish up this well let me share this This is a good quote from spurgeon listen what spurgeon said about this text he said noah was not saved by the world's being gradually reformed and restored to its primitive innocence But a sentence of condemnation was pronounced, and death, burial, and resurrection ensued. Noah must go into the ark and become dead to the world. The floods must descend from heaven and rise upward from their secret fountains beneath the earth. The ark must be submerged with many waters. Here was burial, and then after a time, Noah and his family must come out into a totally new world of the resurrection of life. And that is the picture of what Peter is communicating here in regard to baptism. Here's where it gets really good. And now Peter wants to say this. There's been a lot of people come through and said, I'm God. There's a lot of people come through and said, I I speak for God. I'm here on behalf of God. 
But there is only one who has come and become the substitutionary death. He bore in his body, 1 Peter 2, 24. He himself bore in his body on the tree our sins that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds we have been healed. That's 1 Peter 2, 24. And so Jesus comes and he does that. He bears our sin. He's put into the grave. He goes and proclaims victory. He rises from the dead. We make our appeal to him. I can't rescue myself, so I appeal to you for a good conscience, for a saving, for a rescuing, because you have conquered death. You've conquered the grave. So my trust is in you. And because he is the only one who could do that, here's what Peter says. He says, who has gone through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Everything. Here's what Peter wants us to know. Here's why our salvation has so much significance because there is one who has supremacy above all things. He's the only one that was worthy to die for us. He was the only one who could satisfy the sacrifice that needed to be made for our sin. He's the only one who could vicariously, in a substitutionary way, die for our sins. He's the only one who could go to the spirits in prison and proclaim to them victory. He's the only one who can forgive us. He's the only one that can give us a good consciousness who, that is sensitive to the Spirit. He's the only one that that can place us in himself. We don't place ourselves in him. He's the one who places us in the ark, shuts the door. We are sealed. We are his. We come through the fiery judgment. We come to a new life. We're killed, old way gone, raised to new life. And because he's the only one that can do that, he has the supremacy in every matter in the world. Where angels, where authorities, where powers, they all sit and bow at his feet because he has been given the supremacy in all things. Do you remember the high priest on the Day of Atonement, the high day, Yom Kippur, he would go into the Holy of Holies And there's a beautiful picture that Spurgeon writes about Jesus ascending and seated at the right hand of the Father. Listen to what Spurgeon says about this. He said, though he was not with them, the high priest, when he went into the Holy of Holies, he was with God, which was better for the people. The high priest was more useful to them within the veil of the Holy of Holies than outside of it. He was doing for them out of sight what he could not accomplish in their view. And then Spurgeon writes, I delight to think that my Lord is with the Father, seated at the right hand. Sometimes I sense that I cannot get to God, he said. My, he says, sometimes I feel like it's, I'm blocked in getting there to him because of my sin. And then Spurgeon says this, but I know this, that he is always there with the Father to plead for me, and Spurgeon was saying, even when I don't feel it, even though sometimes my decisions say something completely different. And right now, folks, in heaven, 
Jesus is seated in the place of power and authority. And he speaks our name. Pleading our case. Brian Hill's mine. Amy Tipton's mine. R.C. Crosby is mine. Carl Abair is mine. And he intercedes for you and I every moment, every day. Satan accuses the brethren. Jesus says this. Shut up. That one belongs to me. So why do we worship? Why is Peter in five verses just shared so much depth about the glory of Jesus because he's the only one who has earned in who not really earned but he's the only one who has the supremacy in all things because of who he is and what he has done and this demands our attention demands our worship because he's the one where of angels authorities and powers are all subject at his feet that's good stuff that's five verses chapter four next week he's going to kind of carry on we start chapter four next week he's going to carry on the freedom we can have in regard to sin because of what christ has done for us let's pray together